First Peter chapter number two tonight, and uh, I, I'm actually going to read a few uh, passages of scripture to you, uh, and then we'll read our text. So you're where you need to be in chapter two, but I want to read to you a passage of scripture out of Acts chapter eight, just one verse, and then I want to read two verses out of the first uh, chapter of First Peter. So listen carefully; you'll understand a little bit when we get to preaching. Uh, while we are reading these verses. Acts chapter number 8, verse number 1 says this, And Saul was consenting unto his death, speaking about Stephen, consenting unto Stephen's death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now in First Peter chapter 1, uh, it begins this way. Peter says, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Now where you're at in chapter 2, I want you to look down at verse 9. The Word of God says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, Glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to be in your house. I pray that you would take your word and that the Spirit of God would wield his sword deftly in our hearts and minds. Lord, that you'd help us to rightly divide the word of truth, to understand it biblically and correctly. Lord, we know that inasmuch as we learn your word, as you gave it to us, as you, uh, Lord, intend for us to understand it, uh, that it'll feed our souls and that Christ will be magnified. And that's what we desire tonight that he get all the glory from what will take place. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this might be a little bit different kind of a message tonight. I want to do a little bit of expounding and a little bit of talking and a little bit of teaching, and we'll probably do a little bit of preaching as well tonight as we move through the text of the Word of God. Uh, you know, and this is going to sound a little funny as a way to start the message, but I just want to say I'm a dispensationalist. Now, there's a reason I say that. Now, what is a dispensationalist? Well, a dispensationalist is someone uh, that views the Word of God through the distinctions that God gives in His Word. Uh, the working definition we've been using, we've been teaching through Ephesians in our Sunday school class over in the Life Center, and uh, we have been teaching it uh, through a dispensational lens. Now, when you say that, sometimes folks get the, the idea that you found some kind of secret sauce or hidden idea that ain't anywhere in the Bible. Well, that's not what a dispensationalist is. A dispensationalist is someone that preaches and teaches and studies and understands the Bible as God gave it to us. And we've used that term dispensationalist as a defined, summarized term to explain uh, a perspective that we have when we read the Word of God. But we're not putting anything in it that's not in it already. Uh, what we have used as our definition of that is this. 
dispensationalism is observing and respecting the distinctions that God makes. Now, what I mean to say by that is uh, in the Word of God, when God says, here is a difference between this or that, or here is a difference between this time period and that time period, here's a difference in what I expect out of these people, here's a difference in what I expect out of those people. When we read that, we observe it. We acknowledge that that exists. And then when we study our Bible, we respect that distinction. I'll give you a basic, simple example that will help our preaching tonight. The Bible tells us there's basically three people groups in this world. Uh, the world divides itself along all kinds of lines. But you want to know how God views the world. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians, he says, give none offense, neither to the Jew, nor to the Gentile, nor to the church of the living God. So when God looks at the world, he sees it in three categories. Unregenerate Jews, unregenerate Gentiles. We mean unsaved Jews, unsaved Gentiles, and then saved individuals. You say, why is that, preacher? Because in Christ Jesus, there's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. Neither Jew nor Greek. We're a new man in Christ Jesus. The book of Ephesians tells us that he's broken down that middle wall of partition of twain, meaning of two different groups, Jews and Gentiles. He's made one new man, which is a saved believer in Christ Jesus. So we really, sometimes we use little inside baseball when we talk about this, little inside baseball language, but there's really no need to. When we study the Bible, we're just observing the distinctions that God makes. And we could speak uh, for hours on that particular topic. But how does it inform how we study our text tonight? Well, when we begin in the book of First Peter, we are told exactly who Peter has in mind when he pins this down. We are told that he is writing to the strangers that are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, now, who are those strangers? Well, we read about them because, by the way, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. We read about them in Acts chapter number 8 when we're told that whenever uh, Paul, before he was Paul, he was Saul, he was persecuting the church. And uh, the believers at Jerusalem, which I know this might shock you, but there's mainly Jewish believers, uh, they were scattered abroad throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now, we know the Bible tells us that Paul's the apostle to the uncircumcision, to the Gentiles. And Peter's the apostle to the circumcision, meaning to Jewish Individuals, And that don't mean that uh, Peter never won a Gentile to Christ. And it sure enough don't mean that Paul never won a Jew to Christ. But what it means is the focus of their ministries were to these respective groups, to believers that have been saved. And God gave Paul an open door in reaching Gentiles with the gospel and then teaching after they've been saved those Gentiles who and what they were in Christ Jesus. And likewise, God had given an open door to Peter in reaching Jewish people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and then teaching them who and what they were now because they're not Jews like they was before Calvary, just like Gentiles, ain't just Gentiles like they were before Calvary. If they've been born again, they're a new man in Christ Jesus, teaching them who they are in Jesus Christ. And so the book of First Peter, along with Second Peter and James and the book of Hebrews, are what we commonly call Hebrew Christian epistles. And what that means is not that we as Gentiles can't learn from them. In fact, we're going to do a little preaching and learning from them tonight. But what it does say to us is that the perspective that is given in these epistles is towards uh, Jewish individuals, uh, particularly ones that have been raised up in Judaism, had been taught this their whole life, had worshipped at the temple, had, had uh, gone to the feast, had, had partaken in sacrifices, in teaching them, how Jesus Christ is the completeness, the fulfillment, the consummation of all that they had ever known and how that they have in Him something that they never had at the table of the tabernacle. So that's sort of the focus of these Hebrew Christian epistles. 
And we are told when we read in 1 Peter chapter, well, I told you I was going to do a little teaching, a little talk, and we'll, we'll do a little bit of it, and we'll preach here in a few moments. That's why Peter calls them elect. Verse number 2 of chapter 1, he says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Every bit of that smacks of Jewish perspective. Uh, the Jewish nation is elect. They are God's chosen nation in this world. And God has foreordained that they as His people would be His people and would know Him. One of the great mysteries in the Old Testament, I don't want to get in the weeds here because we won't preach a message here in a second, but one of the great mysteries in the Old Testament was how God was going to make Israel what He promised He would make them. Whenever Christ comes and finds the Jewish nation uh, in, uh, in the Gospels, they are not a righteous people. They are not a holy people. They are not a people close with God. They are not a people sincere in their worship. And uh, the Apostle Paul spends a great deal of time in the book of Ephesians talking about how that it was always the will of God that through Jesus Christ, the Jewish nation, that a, a Jew under Christ could come to know God in a greater way than a Jew under the law ever could have hoped to do. Uh, one of the things they didn't understand is why they rejected the Messiah. They thought God was going to bring all this uh, about with a crown, but instead He brings it about with a cross. And Paul spends time teaching them how that this was always the plan of God. Let me, let me just go ahead and say this right here. Calvary wasn't an accident and the church wasn't an audible. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I mean that God wasn't surprised by what happened at Calvary. Uh, it didn't catch him by surprise. He knew that the Jewish nation would reject their Messiah, would nail him to a cross, would, would crucify him. And God had already made account for that. He knew that. And the church was not an audible. It's not like God looked down and said, well, the Jews dropped the ball. I guess we'll have a church. No, it was always God's intention through Calvary to bring about the promises that He had made to the Jewish nation. You can study in your own time the book of Ephesians and the Hebrew Christian epistles and see it through that perspective. But that is why Peter says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. He didn't pick up a copy of, of uh, Calvin's Institutes of Theology. Somebody say amen to that. He didn't pick up the latest John Piper book and, and turn into a Calvinist in First Peter chapter number 1. But when he talks about elect, he's not talking about Gentiles being born again. He's talking about the Jewish nation. And now he is writing to these Jewish individuals that have turned their back on Judaism and have uh, clung to the cross of Calvary. And he's saying to them, you are part of the first fruits of what God is going to do in the nation of Israel. Uh, this is no surprise to God. You are part of this elect group according to the foreknowledge of God. That's why he says through the sanctification of the Spirit. Not through the sanctification of Old Testament sacrifices, but through the sanctification of the Spirit. In other words, God's bringing this to pass uh, through this spiritual work that He's performed in your heart and life uh, by the Holy Ghost. He says unto obedience, which by the way, the law could never produce. The law never made a man righteous. The Bible says by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. If the law made a man righteous, why were the Pharisees uh, a generation of vipers? The law didn't make a man righteous. It could show a man where he was unrighteous, but it couldn't make a man righteous. But through the sanctification of the Spirit, through the regenerating work that the Spirit of God, I might just preach a little bit, that the Spirit of God does in a man's life, God is able to do something through the Lord that the law never could do. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Now the law doesn't have flesh, but you and I have flesh. Only problem with the law is we's lawbreakers. Uh, the Bible says, Paul said the law was good, but hey, I'm carnal, sold under sin. There ain't no problem with the law, but the problem is I'm a lawbreaker. 
And what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, He became our sin on Calvary's hill and He made the way for us. And so God did this through the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience. And then that word sprinkling. Now, just like He didn't turn into a Calvinist, He also didn't turn into a Methodist. When it says the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, He's he's not talking about baptismal waters, but what's He talking about? Well, you and I sitting here as Gentiles, we read that and think, well, he's talking about baptism. But a Jew reading that wouldn't have thought about that. Uh, The Jew would have thought about two things. He would have thought about, one, the consecrating of the law in the Old Testament. You remember whenever Moses, after the law is given, takes the hyssop, dips it in blood, and he consecrates the law, and he consecrates the people. There's another place they would have thought about it. Over there in the book of Numbers, we're told about that sacrifice of the red heifer. This, by the way, is one of the great barriers uh, to Orthodox uh, Judaism trying to reinstitute uh, worship today is that uh, they're all ceremonially unclean. Uh, even if they had a temple, even if they had a sacrifice, even if they had an altar, even if they had uh, all these instruments, they still would be ceremonially unclean to go before God as a nation. They've been scattered throughout the nation. They've not been keeping the law, so on and so forth. And that's why there's great effort towards the breeding of a red heifer. Because in the Old Testament, when a man was unclean, the only way it could be made ceremonially clean is through the sacrifice of the red heifer. It would be given, and I won't go into all the details because we want to, we're supposed to be in First Peter. How did we get here? Uh, y'all, y'all gonna keep me on track tonight, amen? <laughs> but, uh, they would sacrifice that red heifer, they would burn it, uh, into ash, and they would take that ash and put it in water, and that water would then be used to purify and consecrate the priests so that they could then go in and offer a sacrifice. And so when he talks about the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, He's talking about God's consecrating work in a man's life. What makes him fit to come to God. Now you and I as Gentiles sitting here, that, that we read that and think, well, you know, I don't know what he's talking about. But a Jew reading that would have known immediately what's being spoken of. So all of this has a particular Jewish perspective given to it. Now I want you to think about what Peter says then in chapter 2. We're going to finally wind down to where our text is. He speaks to these Jewish believers. These are people that have turned their back on everything they've known. They believed on Jesus Christ and they have now been met with intense persecution. Uh, there are still Jews occupying the land. The Romans have not come in and destroyed it as they did in 70 AD. They've not done that yet. But these believers have been driven from their land. And they're beginning to wonder, you know, I, I know that I'm saved in Christ Jesus, but I've still got Jewish blood and God gave all these promises to Israel as a nation. Where does that leave us? And Peter writes to them, and it encourages them, exhorts them uh, about where they are and who they are in Christ Jesus. He says this, and we'll do a little preaching right here. Look at verse number 9. He says to these individuals, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. He begins by reminding these individuals. And by the way, we're going to make application of this to us as Gentiles too. You say, well, preacher, how can we do that? Because uh, of twain, there's been made one new man. There may be a Jewish perspective of this text, but there ain't a Jewish application of it. You say, why is that, preacher? Because whether Jew or Gentile, we're both one new man in Christ Jesus. We might be able to be informed by understanding the people that Peter is writing to. Uh, But that does not exclude us from partaking in the divine truth here. I said I'm a dispensationalist, but I'm not what they call a hyper-dispensationalist. 
Now, what's a hyper-dispensationalist? He's somebody that'd say, don't even read it because it ain't applied to you. Well, I'm sorry. Listen, all these things were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world come. Don't fence me out of the part of my Bible. I understand. I understand who it's written to, but I also understand there's meaning and, and treasure and richness and application for me as well. What does he say? Well, he reminds them of three things. Number one, in verse 9, he reminds them of their position. And he gives them four things. And each four of these, by the way, transcend what they had merely by their ethnic or cultural identity as Jews. The first thing he says is they are a chosen generation. Now, this is interesting to me because they always thought of themselves as a chosen people. And yet we find that these chosen people, though they were chosen of God to be his nation, to be his people, that they quickly and and (laughs) repeatedly fell into rebellion, apathy, and disobedience. But he points to these individuals and he says, do you understand you're part of this generation that saw the Messiah come? You have an opportunity that Jews of generations past never could have seen and never could have imagined. You're part of that group that now is standing in this dispensation of grace, this church age, and you are able to be a recipient of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a glorious thing, he says, that you're a part of this group. Can I say to you, hey, listen, what a glorious thing that we're living in the days that we're living in. Somebody will say, preacher, it's a wicked time. Yeah, I know it's a wicked time. Uh, but think about it. Christ is, is on the throne on the right hand of the Father. The Holy Ghost is working. The gospel is saving. The word of God is powerful. I'm saying this. We are perfectly positioned to reach people with the gospel. Imagine that you and I. And by the way, there's something on the other end of this. Uh, Peter looks at him and I'm going to say Paul a few times tonight. But you just ignore me and, and just give me a little grace. Because uh, we don't ever preach out of, out of Peter. We preach out of Paul. Amen. So. Uh, we ain't going to preach out of Mary either, amen? So, uh, But <laughs> uh, there's something on both ends of this. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, he's speaking to them and he's saying, listen, uh, you're part of this glorious generation that has lived this close to Calvary. But as it dawned on you and I uh, that we could be part of that glorious generation that's as close to the second coming as they were to the first coming. Has it dawned on you? We could be that generation. Preachers been saying it. They've been saying it. Hey, listen, sooner or later, they're going to hit the nail on the head. It's going to be our generation uh, that does not meet the end of their life through the undertaker, but through the undertaker. What a glorious thing. I'm saying this. We can walk around looking like we're beat up, defeated, and like the devil's won. Or we can wake up and realize, hey, we are in a glorious position to be a part of this day that we're living in. He says you're a chosen generation. Number two, he says you're a royal priesthood. Well, now that's interesting. You know why? Because this is something an Old Testament Jew could have never been a part of. You say, but preacher, there were priests in the Old Testament. That's true. But there was a prohibition in the Old Testament of a man being both a king and a priest. Now, there were some practical reasons for that. It would have vested too much power uh, in, in one institution. But there's another reason for that. Because there was, prior to this, a king priest. But none of the Old Testament priests were ever king priests. You've got to go further back then Sinai to find that king priest. Uh, In the book of Hebrews, we're told about him in chapter number 7, verse number 1. The Bible says, for this Melchizedek. You remember Melchizedek, Genesis chapter number 14. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. 
Now, we could talk all the what-if theology questions. You think Melchizedek was this guy, and I think he was that guy, and this person thinks he was that guy. You say, who was he, preacher? He was Melchizedek. Now, there might be a better answer, but we just saved ourselves a lot of time just now by just saying, here's Melchizedek. I'll tell you who I don't think he was. I don't think he was a theophany. I don't think it was Christ in the Old Testament. Because the Bible says, like unto the Son of God. Now, if you believe that, that's fine. I won't fist fight you over it if you won't fist fight me over it. But I don't believe he was Jesus, but I do believe he was a type of Jesus Christ. And we are told and taught in the New Testament that the royal priesthood that we are a part of is not like unto that Levitical priesthood, but rather it is like unto that Melchizedek priesthood. You say, why is that, preacher? Because we are fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. We've been born again into the family of God. The foundation of the priesthood of the believer, the individual priesthood of the believer, is not founded in the Levitical priesthood. It's founded in the priesthood of Jesus Christ, which is foreshadowed in the person of Melchizedek. And you say, preacher, what are you getting to? Why are you saying all that? I'm saying this. We are in a a choice priesthood, a choice station and status. We We are spiritual blood kin of not only the great high priest of our profession, but of the King of kings and Lord of lords. He talks about them being a royal priesthood. Then he says they're a holy nation. Isn't that interesting? Again, of all the things we can say about Israel, I don't know that we could say Israel was ever much of a holy nation. They were constantly beset by their carnality and by temptation. Now one day they're going to be, and God's going to make them that one day. But you can read through the history of the nation of Israel, and you will find that except for for uh, bright and gleaming uh, spots and exceptions throughout their history as a nation. By and large, they were a carnal people. But he says, you know, God's made you part of a greater nation now. You are now part of the citizenship in heaven. You are part of the kingdom of God. And you are now part of a greater nation than what you were by merely being Jewish by birth. Then he says this, he calls them a peculiar people. Now we think of that word peculiar and we think it's strange. And you know, if the shoe fits, that's fine. But uh, that's not what he's talking about there. He's saying that you are, again, we could use that word choice, not in the sense that God has chosen us to heaven or chosen us to hell, but in the sense that like a choice piece of meat. Amen. Uh, we are we are a, a step above, a station above. We have been elevated above our natural condition. And by the way, that's true for us Gentiles as well as uh, Jews that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we, have, we have been transformed into something different than what the world is and what the what we were when we were naturally in the world. So uh, he talks about our position. Number two, he talks about our purpose. He says that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, when he talks about darkness here, we could talk about the darkness that Judaism was at the time of Christ's earthly ministry. And it was a dark thing. There were exceptions to that, of course. There were individuals that somehow looked past the formality and the ceremonialism and the deadness and all of that, and saw in it the glowing promises of the soon coming Messiah. But by and large, it was a dead religion by the time Christ came along. Now, if you want to dispute that, then you're going to have to explain to me why they nailed him to the cross. Uh, They rejected him because uh, they had yielded to a dead formality and form of religion. And Peter is saying, you know, God's called you out of that darkness and into the light. He has made you a new creature in Christ Jesus. But by the way, you know, we could say that about Gentiles as well. Because the Apostle Paul writing to the Gentiles at Colossae says that God has translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom, or from the power of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. What he's pointing to is that the purpose of our life now is that we be a living testimony of the power of God to save and transform people. 
Jew and Gentile alike, every one of us is a trophy of grace. We, we exist for the purpose of telling other, of showing others they can be saved and telling others how they can be saved. Now, I understand that maybe if we want to be more nuanced, we could say, well, it's not just merely soul winning, you know, where our purpose is to glorify God. Uh, but I find this to be true. While, while I would concede that, I would say that if we have to choose between a carnal form of evangelism or a righteous form of living, we must choose a righteous form of living. I found that we may make that distinction, but the Bible doesn't seem to make it very often. You know why that is? Because those two things go hand in hand. If a person is living the right life, he's going to want to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what's the purpose that we have? Well, that we might show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Then he talks about our promotion. We're going to get through this introduction in just a second. Look at verse 10 with me. <laughs> you, laugh if you want. I, you might not be laughing in 45 minutes. But it, in verse 10 he says this, which in time past were not a people. Isn't that amazing? We could take that all the way back to Abraham, but I don't think Peter is. We could suggest that what Peter is saying here is at one time we were not a people, but then God called Abraham out of pagan darkness and formed of him a nation. But I don't believe that's what he's talking about. Now you say, why don't you believe that, preacher? Because his whole perspective is not how God has trans... trans let me say it, I'll get it here in a second. Not how he has elevated them, not how he has raised them out of pagan darkness into Judaism and its light and worship, but rather how he has raised them from dead Judaism into the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The perspective is not you used to be pagans and now you Jews. The perspective is used to you weren't a people, but now you're the people of God. Not that you weren't a people, but now you're a people. But you weren't a people, but now you're the people of God. When Christ came and ministered in Israel during His earthly ministry, I don't think we could suggest that the people of God, at least from a spiritual perspective, nailed Him to a cross. Now, I'm not dismissing the still present, still extant, still meaningful and potent promises that God has made to Israel as a nation, which, by the way, I believe are still in force and in effect today. God's never broke a single promise to Jew or Gentile alike. But what he is speaking of here is not merely their status or station as far as their nationality, their ethnicity, or their culture, but he's talking about spiritually what God has done in their life. And he's saying, used to, you were not a people. Now here's what I find interesting about that. Is all throughout the Old Testament, the message is the first. The message is you used to be nothing and now you're something. But now Peter says, even in what that something was that God had made you, you still weren't what you are now in Jesus Christ. He's saying for all that it was, for all the life that it gave, for all the for all the wisdom that it gave, for all of the revelation that it gave, it couldn't transform you as a people. It could make you a people that belonged to God, but it couldn't make you a people of God. It could make you different than the Gentiles, but it couldn't make you what you need to be in Christ Jesus, what the law could not do. But he says now in Christ Jesus, you've been made what God designed and desired for you to be. You used to not be a people, but now you're the people of God. You had not obtained mercy, but now you've obtained mercy. You say, preacher, that might be talking about they were pagans, but I would say this, the law was not an instrument of mercy. Let me just say it again. The law was not an instrument of mercy. What does the Bible say? That that the, the law is not a thing of faith, but it's a thing of works. Uh, any, if any man's going to live in the law, they better do what the law says. Isn't that what Paul says in the book of Galatians, 
that it's not of grace, it's not of, it's not of faith, but rather it is of works, that a man that puts himself under the curse of the law has to do what the law teaches and says. The law was never an instrument of mercy. But listen, Calvary is an instrument of mercy. We had not obtained mercy, but now we've obtained mercy. You say, well, preacher, that's good. I'll put that in a letter and mail it to a Jew I know. But hold on, Gentile. Listen to what the book of Ephesians says, chapter 2, verse 11. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. You say, what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying, listen, I, I, I'm saying if the Jews were at shortstop, we is out in the outfield. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying if they was far from God, and they were, then how far were we as Gentiles? The same could all be said of us. And it is in light of these glorious truths that Peter exhorts us to do four things. Let me mention them in passing and we'll be done tonight. Look down at verse 11. Now I know he's, he's writing to save Jews. He's writing to Jewish believers. But I think there's an application to us too. You say, why is that, preacher? Because they, as saved individuals, born again by the grace of God, had been driven from their land and were now living in a foreign land, a strange land that was not their own. And yet we find spiritually the same truth to be real in our lives. That we likewise, though we may be living, I was, I was born in Tennessee, I was raised in Tennessee. If, if I have my way, or maybe if other people have their way, I'll die in Tennessee. Amen? But we understand that our citizenship is not here. As New Testament believers, this world is not our home. And so what is written to these Jewish believers that are, that are geographically scattered from their homeland is likewise true for us even as Gentiles saved by the grace of God that are likewise alienated from our spiritual homeland and find ourselves strangers in this world. And he says this, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. So what advice would Peter give to us? Can I just ask you this question before I get into the preaching? Do you ever feel like this world's getting weirder and you're becoming more of a stranger? I don't know about you. I turn on the news. I don't actually, I don't ever turn on. Maybe you do, but I don't turn on the news. But I'll read the news on, you know, internet or something like that. I look at this world, man. I think how wicked this world is. And I just, I just find myself sticking out more. And I just say it that way. I just, I just, I don't, I don't understand this world. I don't understand why it does what it does. I, 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 and I just, I find, I feel more and more like a foreigner in my own world. And I don't mean that, I don't mean that ethnically necessarily. I don't necessarily mean that uh, civically or culturally, but I mean spiritually. I look around at this world and think, man, this world, uh, these people ain't my people. This world is not my world. This society is not my society. So what am I supposed to do in light of that? Well, I'd say number one tonight, uh, Peter says we need to keep our souls pure. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. That's amazing to me. He don't warn them against the Romans. He don't warn them against, let's just go down the line. He don't warn them against the, <laughs> I ain't going to be able to do this. Uh, what would a person that lives in Pontus be? A Pontusian? He don't warn them against the Pontusians or the Galatians or the Cappadocians or the Asians or the Bithynianians. He says, you know what your greatest enemy is? Your greatest enemy is that fleshly lust that lives within yourself. You know, the reality is this. We all talk about how wicked the world is, but, you know, we don't really seem to be treating the world with as much danger as we would suggest we believe it contains. Why, if we think the world's dangerous, do we flirt with the world so much? 
If we say we don't trust our flesh, why do we trust it so much? See, the truth is, one of the things you're going to have to do, I've watched some of these, you ever seen these game shows? We used to watch this one where people have to travel around the whole world. And um, they get in, in foreign places. And I'm not a world traveler. I mean, I, up until a few years ago, I'd never been... I had never been farther south than Sweetwater. I'd never been farther north than Tazewell. I'd never been farther east than Cades Cove. And I'd never been farther west than, I don't know, the Mississippi. I'm not a world traveler. But when I watch these people that are traveling all over the world on these game shows, you've seen them. I know you have. You act like you don't watch TV, but you do. Um, when, I, when you see them, man, they get in some of these places. I'm talking about scary places. And you know what they do? First thing they do, they keep their head on a swivel. They say to themselves, if I got in a bind here, I'd have no one to help me. And so I better watch carefully where I walk, what I do, what I say, because I'm in dangerous territory. Can I say to you, you know, for all our griping and moaning and complaining about how wicked the world is, we seem awful lax about the sin dangers that are around us. If we really believe the devil's trying to destroy us, why would we give him any foothold in our life? If we really believe the flesh is trying to cripple us, why would we play with the flesh and allow it to have its way? Here's the truth. We don't have the liberty. We don't have the liberty to play with the world and its dangers. We are living in perilous times. Society ain't going to help you be a Christian. It ain't. I'm just being honest. Maybe a hundred years ago, but today it ain't going to help you. You can go out and live like the devil and, and live like the world and they're just going to clap for you. So you better walk circumspectly and recognize that your flesh will trip you up every chance it gets. Fleshly lust, you know what they do? They war against the soul. Uh, the Bible tells us, warns us about Lot and uh, tells us that he vexed his righteous soul with their evil, with their wicked doing, with their behavior day in and day out. Uh, Lot thought he was strong enough to pitch his tent towards Sodom. And by the way, I think, you know, for all that we give Lot down the road, the Bible says his righteous soul calls him a righteous man. We're awful hard on these Bible characters. I mean, I know you and me, we wouldn't have made the mistakes they do. But here's the truth of the matter. Probably if he was walking in flesh around us today, he'd be one of the best Christians around. But I got news for you. No matter how good you think you are, uh, you ain't good enough to set up camp right by Sodom. We better recognize the dangers around us. And you know what happens when we live in the midst of the world's wickedness? It will, just like it did with Lot, it will wear our souls down. It will make us weary. We'll get tired of fighting and fussing against the world all the time. Uh, we'll get tired of having to be the one that is contrary and going the opposite direction and always has a problem with something. And pretty soon, sooner or later, we'll start to yield. We'll start to give in. You say, preacher, what can we do? Well, we've got to abstain from those fleshly lusts. It may mean not living like they live. But do you want the life that they live? It may mean not doing what they do. But do you want the, the, the damage that they have? If we want to be different than the world, then we have to be different than the world. I know that seems simple. Maybe, maybe almost on the, on the tipping point of foolishness. But we struggle with it, don't we? We say, well, I'm going to do everything like the world does, but I'm going to have a different outcome. It's folly. It's foolishness. We've got to keep our souls pure. Number two, look at verse 12. The Bible says, Having your conversations honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. We need not only keep our souls pure. Number two, we need to keep a strong testimony. 
We need to keep a strong testimony. The world is not going to give you the benefit of the doubt. They're going to watch everything that you do. You may not like this. You may not think it's fair. But the truth is they're going to judge what they think of Christ by how you live as a Christian. We can rail against it. We can be exasperated. We can think it's unfair. Or we can view it as an opportunity to share the reality of Christianity on display amongst the world that we're living in. You know, if a person is in a foreign land, one of the things that they will strive to do most of the time, if they want to stay safe and if they want to have a good time, they'll do everything they can to not give offense to the people that are around. That's one of the things I, and I don't listen, I don't, I don't truck a lot with these Europeans griping about how Americans are. I don't truck a lot with what most Europeans do and are and think and say. So I, I just, I don't like this whole thing of them treating it like, oh, Americans are so terrible when they go to foreign countries and this and that. Listen, they're probably just as arrogant and just as brash and just as obnoxious as the average American is. Uh, but I would say this, sometimes uh, Americans tend to have that testimony or tend to have that reputation of, uh, of being inconsiderate when they go to other places. And you know what it usually does? Fair or unfair, people will treat them worse as a result of it. Can I say this? If we're going to live in this foreign world that we're living in, we better recognize that whether it's fair or not, we're going to be held to a higher standard. There's going to be more expected out of us. You won't be able to live like your co-workers live. You're a Christian. We're going to get done a lot sooner if I get a little help. You, you're not, I'm sorry, you're born again, you're a child of God, you done read your Bible at, at break time at work, you done told them you go to church, you're held to a higher standard now. Preacher, that ain't fair. No, that's lie. Not only that, that's your responsibility as a Christian. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, and by the way, they did of Jewish people then. They do of Jewish people today. This is one of the uh, results of uh, probably of, of their uh, not being in the land. We could talk a lot about that. But suffice it to say, you know, what's being said about Jewish believers here could be said of Gentile believers today or in any day in this dispensation of grace. Christians are held to a higher standard. They're treated as a scapegoat in society. Listen, I understand that the moral majority has been the majority for a lot of years in this country, but it is not that anymore. And it's not going to get any better. It's only going to get worse. We better buck up. We better we, we better belt up. And we better recognize that we are not the majority anymore. We're going to have to start living like a Christian in this world around us. People are not going to give us a pass. They're not going to give us the benefit of the doubt. We're going to have to start living like strangers in this world. So, well, let's move on a little bit. Look at verse 13. The Bible says this, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. Now, let me go ahead and get this out of the way. Some people have tried to take and, and misinterpret Scripture as to suggest that there is never a biblical justification for going contrary to what government does. Uh, you can believe that if you want. Go ahead and rip all of the book of Acts out of your Bible. Go ahead and rip all of the prison epistles out of your Bible. The very man, by the way, the very one that sat and wrote, let souls be subject unto higher powers, Romans chapter 13, I've read it like you have. Uh, the very one that wrote it was sitting in a prison cell for not being subject unto higher power. So all of you say, what does that mean, preacher? Well, it means this, we need to preach the whole counsel of God and not just take a portion of the Word of God and use it to our ends or to our means. There are times that it's biblically and spiritually justified for you to take a stand against what government is doing. Uh, there's times when I think it's your responsibility to do that very thing. 
But then what does this mean that Peter is writing about? Now remember, he's writing to Jews that are scattered in foreign lands. And I would say it this way. Keep our souls pure. Keep a strong testimony. Let me say number three, keep a singular focus. He's saying don't get entangled with civic battles. It's not what you're here for. I don't know if you're going to like this or not, but I'm going to say it anyway. We have a civic responsibility. I'm not against. Listen, go vote. Go write letters. Go send emails. Go do all of it. Do it twice because I'm I'm not doing some of it. So by all means, go and do that. But I would tell you this. We need to recognize our goal here is not to politically reform the world around us. It's to spiritually transform it through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is so easy to become enlisted into political causes, especially in these days of politically polarized uh, uh, living that we're in. I mean, listen, there's stuff going on. I'm against this and I'm for that. And I believe I'm in the right being that way. But if we're not careful, we will allow our calling to be degraded below what God has saved us for and to do. And we will find ourselves merely being foot soldiers in a political operation instead of soldiers in the army of the Lord. Our responsibility, he is not saying you can't have an opinion. He's not saying if they take a vote, don't vote. He's not saying don't give your opinion about this issue or that issue. What he's saying is this, don't make yourself a political actor. That's not what you're here for. The theme of your life should not be this party or that party. It should be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I believe it's perfectly appropriate for us to have political opinions. i got a whole basket full. But I need to make sure that in the midst of all that, I don't get so entangled with the political uh, engagement of this world that I begin to merely be a constituency or a voter and cease to be a Christian. My greater responsibility doesn't mean that's not a responsibility, but my greater and greatest responsibility is that of being a saved child of God to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to transform this world through salt and through light, through the testimony of my life. So keep a singular focus. And final thing, and I'm done. You're either saying, oh, me, or amen, or oh, my, I don't know at this point. But uh, we're almost done, so just hang on. Verse 15, he says this, for so is the will of God. Boy, that's tough, isn't it? For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Four things. The first is we need to keep our souls pure. The greatest enemy is the one that looks back at us in the mirror every morning. Number two, keep a strong testimony. You're not given the benefit of the doubt. You're a child of God. You're a Christian. And you, whether you like it or not, are held to a higher standard. Keep a singular focus. Our job here is not to get better paid for the McDonald's workers. I'm not against them getting paid better, but that just ain't my focus. It's not. That's not my calling. My job here is not to get this an electorate or that one thrown out. My job here as a Christian is to be a witness and testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whatever opinions I may have liberty to hold and even voice, that's fine, but do not let it overshadow your testimony as a Christian. Don't let it become the driving singular focus of your life. Christ died for you. Christ died for you. You owe Him more than you owe anyone else. There's no one that ever has or is or ever will run for office that you owe as much to as you owe to your Savior. So just make sure in whatever you're doing, make sure He is in first place in your life. And then finally, I'd say this. Keep a servant's heart. Keep a servant's heart. So is the will of God that with well-doing, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolishness. 
Not by the sword, not by the pen, but by the servant's heart. It's the will of God that through our testimony, we make an impact in the world around us. As free and not using your liberty for a cloak of malicious. Now, isn't that interesting? He says we're not doing it because we have to. We're doing it because we get to. As free. Not, not as men that are just merely bond slaves to this world system. Listen, there's all kinds of things that we have to put up with. And there's, I'll be honest, in the next 50 years, there's going to be a lot more we're going to have to put up with. And we can either walk through life peddling in this aggrievement industry that the world is so addicted to, this victimhood mentality and this victimhood culture where everybody's part of an aggrieved voting block, or we can disengage, disengage with all that mess and all that madness and say, I'm not doing what I do because I have to or because there's no other way. I'm living life the way I'm living because I belong to Jesus Christ. He is my Savior. I am His servant. Here, I'm Toby Weber. Let me help you. I'm here to be a testimony and a witness. I ain't nobody's victim. I'm a victor in Christ Jesus. Listen, I, I, I'm not. <laughs> well, we ain't going to say that, are we? Come on, Toby. Listen to the Holy Spirit. I would just simply say this tonight. I would simply say that in our life we get farther by being just like Christ did, by being the servant of God and the servant of man than we ever can with trying to jockey and claw and climb for our own position and representation. This victim mentality is a drug. It is a drug. And Christians are getting roped into it just like the world is. And you think those politicians going to represent you? Son, listen, you're smarter than that. They're going to use your vote and throw you away, just like they always have done. You better remember who went to Calvary for you. He's the one who loves you. He's the one who loves you. He's the one who died for you. And I'm just saying, we can either walk around and, 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 and transact with this silly social system that this world has and lose at their game, or we can live the way that God has saved us and called us to be. And find that in Christ Jesus, our faith is the victory that overcomes the world. How are we going to live? I hope we live like strangers in this world. We ought to make a deliberate effort to. Let's pray tonight. Let's have somebody come to the piano. You may have business to do with God. And if you do, I, I want you to do it tonight. Father, I love you. I thank you for your word. I thank you it's true. Pray that you'd bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.